This is Our American Stories, and today is President's Day. And though folks are supposed to celebrate all presidents, there's only one to really celebrate on President's Day, and that's our first president, George Washington. Let's take a listen to his story this hour. The poet Robert Frost once remarked that George Washington was one of the few in the whole history of the world who was not carried away by power. Washington could have become King of America if he wanted to. Instead, America's first general became the United States' first two-term civilian president, something a world familiar only with hereditary monarchs had never seen. Napoleon, as he lay dying on the island of St. Helena, condemned for having seized the power of an emperor, complained that his critics wanted me to be another Washington. Underneath the man who has become namesake to thousands of small towns, high schools, the nation's capital, and the 42nd state, whose image is reproduced endlessly on coins, currency, and stamps, and a huge bust carved into a South Dakota mountain, we find a man seeking to belong, longing for acceptance and respect. Parson Mason Weems, an Episcopal clergyman and sometime bookseller, is the source of some of those pious stories about George Washington, like chopping down his father's cherry tree. The real George Washington is born in a modest farmhouse in Northern Virginia on February 22, 1732, the first child of a middle-aged father and a second wife. In the mid-18th century, Virginia is a province of the British Empire. Its sparse population of mostly British descent see themselves as Englishmen, subjects of the king. But the British see Virginians as crude colonists, second class in every way. Washington's father, Augustine, dies when he is 11. George inherits a farmhouse left in trust to his mother, Mary. But the bulk of Augustine Washington's estate, including the sizable plantation at Mount Vernon, goes to his older half-brother, Lawrence. Unlike Lawrence, who's educated in England, George's formal education ends when he is 14. Lawrence convinces Mary Washington to send George to him so that he can teach the boy the ways of society. I wish you were my brother, not my half-brother. I feel all of you is my brother. <laughs> so I am, George. Forever. As George's surrogate father, Lawrence offers guidance and contact with the wealthiest and most prominent family in Virginia, the Fairfax family, which he has married into. The rough young man learns his social graces by quietly watching and imitating those in Lawrence's charmed circle. Acutely aware of his own lack of sophistication, fearful of social missteps, Washington develops lifelong habits of social reserve. He studies books on manners, he reads English magazines, and translations of Roman classics so that he would have something to say at dinner parties. But to become one of the elite, George needs to make money. By 17, he is working as a frontier surveyor in the Appalachian Mountains. At 18, he buys his first piece of land. Washington, like all Virginians, needed land. Land was the most valuable commodity uh, in, a, in, a, in an agrarian society. Uh, they needed land to replenish their tobacco fields, which wore out in four to eight years. They needed land for speculative purposes, for a rainy day, 
It was the one form of inheritance they could pass on that would be of great value to their offspring. The land west of the Appalachian Mountains bears a wilderness of inconceivable magnitude and unimaginable richness. I never knew it was so big, so rich, so green and untouched. Wherever we go, I feel that we're the first to ever walk this land. Indians are out here somewhere. Few Americans have seen it, but the British crown wants it. So does their arch rivals, the French, and both have to reckon with the Indians who live there. Washington has surveyed it, and in 1754, he comes to fight for it. After all, as a soldier of the British crown, he can rise higher in society than any mere surveyor. He is now 22, six feet three inches tall, a major in the Virginia regiment, and after years in the backwoods, as tough as the terrain. A smoldering Cold War between England and France, fueled by conflicting land claims on two continents, hits a flashpoint in the Ohio Valley. In Europe, this conflict will be called the Seven Years' War. In North America, it is known as the French and Indian War. Eventually, the French will be driven from America, but at such a cost that the British will raise taxes in America to pay for the fighting. This leads to the American Revolution, in which the French aids America. The French will pay for this with higher taxes, which leads to the French Revolution. Washington is called to the Virginia Governor's Palace in Williamsburg. Now I should like to consult with you upon a matter of great import. The King of France, not satisfied with the vast province of Canada, has decided to make open trespass on British soil. He has sent soldiers into our territory, thus flouting British sovereignty established by God and King. They build forts, trade with our Indians and otherwise encroach upon our sacred rights. I have received orders from His Gracious Majesty to send an emissary demanding that they depart. Sir. Before you recommend someone, sir, I think you should know that the French are a treacherous people. This emissary will be in considerable danger. Yes, sir, but... Which is why I need someone who can travel hundreds of miles through unknown mountains, has experience with the Indians, and is possessed of a hearty constitution. You were about to recommend someone, sir? Your description fits only me, sir. Washington is sent out on his first assignment. His job is to lead 139 men to the forks of the Ohio River and build a fort there before the French can. His only military preparation consists of fencing lessons and having read two books on the art of war. But the French beat Washington to his goal, and now his Indian scouts tell him that the French are sending a party to ambush him. Washington leads his men on a night march towards the French camp, where he finds 40 men sleeping. At dawn, he strikes. A few minutes later, 10 French, including a French ambassador, and four Englishmen are dead. The French court brands him an assassin. The French and Indian War has begun. When we come back, we pick up where we left off, the life of George Washington right up until he became president of the United States, the part of the story you've never heard. More after these messages. This is Our American Stories.
this special President's Edition of Our American Stories, we continue with the life of the most essential president, our first president, George Washington. Later at the Battle of Fort Duquesne, Washington demonstrates that what he lacks in strategic ability, he more than makes up for in sheer bravery, when he has two horses shot from under him. Three years later, again at Fort Duquesne, two groups of Virginia militiamen stumble upon one another in the wilderness and mistakenly open fire on each other. Washington rides between opposing lines, knocking away guns on both sides with his sword. Fourteen are killed, twenty-six are wounded, Washington isn't touched. At 24, he returns a hero to his fellow Virginians. But when he seeks a commission as a full British officer, not just a Virginia colonial officer, he is rudely rejected. Your arrogance defies me, sir. We are at war with France. And you, sir, were the man who fired the shot that started this war. He resigns from the militia in protest. Good day, sir. Denied advancement in the British Army, he realizes that if he is to make his mark in the world, he must do it as a civilian. What's so touching about his experience in the French and Indian War is that it was the making of him in a way that he did not expect. Instead of being the making of him as an element of the glittering gentleman's world of the British Virginia Empire, it was the making of his experience of human vicissitude and the forging of his character, and I suspect the beginnings of those personal feelings which made it possible for him to be a rebel leader where once all he had wanted was to be an imperial guard. Then, in 1752, after having found the town of Alexandria, Virginia, George's half-brother and father figure Lawrence dies of tuberculosis. George becomes the owner of Mount Vernon, He's got lots of land, but little money to work it with, and he is alone. For ten years he has wooed a succession of young women, all of whom reject him, some because he isn't rich enough, and some because they are put off by his restrained personality. Then George is introduced to Martha Custis, a 27-year-old widow and mother of two. Martha is five foot tall with a pleasant appearance, is slightly plump, shy, and serious, universally liked and easy to talk to. She is also one of the most wealthy, marriageable women in all of Virginia. Her husband, Daniel Custis, has left her 17,000 acres of tobacco, hundreds of slaves, and several farms. I feel warm and at peace here in your dear Forgive me, I don't know why I've been talking so much upon such early acquaintance. I'm usually more reserved than ladies. I too feel safe and at peace in your company, sir. And that is all I need to know at this moment. The two only spend 20-some hours together before George proposes marriage. Here they come! Within the year, they are married having spent only 15 days in one another's company. In marrying Martha Custis, Washington finally enters the world of the Virginia elite. She was uh, extremely supportive of him. She complimented him in many ways. Uh, she was, um, she socialized more easily than Washington did, liked to talk, 
uh, with friends and greet them, whereas Washington was, I think Washington was a little bit shy. Um, and he was, his size was intimidating. He used to frighten the children. But we're told that Mrs. Washington grabbed him by his lapels and pulled him right down to her face when she wanted to talk to him. Well, my future is to be a farmer and a husband. There'll be no British general telling me how to plow my field or love my wife. Credit extended by British tobacco agents enables Virginia planters to live opulently. But credit also puts them in debt and constant droughts keep devastating crop production. As tobacco prices fall, their debts mount. George and Martha face a dilemma. Washington faces economic collapse. But he's equally fearful of what others might think if he's unable to maintain his style of life. If I economize, Washington writes in a letter, such an alteration in the system of my living will create suspicions of a decay in my fortune. And such a thought the world must not harbor. Image is all important. Washington staffs his residence with 14 servants and seven slaves. But unlike many of his contemporaries who defend slavery, Washington believes that slavery debases both slave and slaveholder. Washington has the resources to pull himself completely out of debt if he sells all of his slaves. But he says, I refuse to participate in that practice of selling slaves. It's wrong. Jonathan Alton, Washington's longtime plantation hand, attempts to sell off the slaves. Washington responds immediately. I gave you no authority to sell any of our people. Colonel, you instructed me to cut costs because of our drought losses. I've told you before, Mr. Alton, I will not break up families. There will be no sale. By not selling slaves without your permission, we can go bankrupt. Joshua, unload them! Virginia law, of course, does not recognize slave families or slave marriages, but Washington does. Washington treats them like family, which is why after they're released following his death, the former slaves come back and take care of Mount Vernon and his and Martha's grave. Of all the founding fathers, Washington is the only one to free his slaves. But Washington is broke. He sees his and his fellow planters' problems as one of dependence on their British agents, the men who sell Virginia's tobacco in Europe and who purchase finished goods on their behalf in London. He was persuaded that they palmed off the shoddiest goods on colonials. All of this simply intensified his sense of anti-colonial discrimination, this time within the context of the imperial commercial system. Although Washington believes he grows the best tobacco in Virginia, he decides to stop growing the labor-intensive, soil-depleting crop and grows grains instead. He is soon selling his produce in Alexandria and buys finished goods from local importers and American manufacturers instead of buying through London agents. Within a decade, he is out of debt and a firm believer in American economic independence. As the British Parliament levies one burdensome tax after another on the colonies, Washington begins to see advantages in American political independence as well. And when British troops sail into Boston in 1768, Washington sees them as nothing more than tax collectors in red coats. Soon Washington joins Patrick Henry as one of the most influential members of the Virginia House of Burgesses. But along with his appointment, also comes a learning curve. 
The first time that Washington ran, he neglected the usual practice of uh, treating the uh, voters with, with uh, alcoholic beverages on election day, and he lost. The next time, he was careful to arrange for some of his supporters to see that the, uh, the bar was open and plentifully supplied, and he won. As relations between Britain and the colonies deteriorate, Virginia sends Washington as one of its delegates to the First Continental Congress in Philadelphia. By the time the Second Continental Congress convenes one year later, fighting breaks out between the Massachusetts Minutemen and the British regulars. President recognizes Mr. Adams of Massachusetts. I believe, sirs, that the hour has come. How few of the human race have ever had an opportunity of choosing a system of government for themselves and their children. While I live, let me have a country. A free country. It is no exaggeration to say that between 1774 and 1777, Independence Hall in Philadelphia glows with more intellectual candle power than has ever burned in a single place before or since. Ben Franklin, John Adams, his cousin Sam, John Jay, the men of the Virginia delegation, Thomas Jefferson, Patrick Henry, Edmund Pendleton, and then there is George Washington. If he'd had the kind of raw ambition that he'd showed in the Seven Years' War, the leading revolutionaries of 1775 wouldn't have touched him. They wouldn't have thought of making him a commander of the Continental Army. They feared a man on horseback. They feared their own army. And the idea of having an ambitious person would have horrified them. And on President's Day, we celebrate the life of George Washington. More of this terrific story... An untold story. After these messages, this is Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories, and we continue with the life of George Washington celebrating President's Day for the hour. We will be left defenseless, gentlemen. He didn't speak much in debates at the Continental Congress. He did not have a strong voice. He wasn't an orator, but then neither were Franklin or Jefferson. I don't think Washington was intimidated by the power of the other intellects there, but he knew himself. He knew he wasn't an original thinker. What Washington could do was express himself with his presence, his uniform, and his habit of command. To symbolize the depth of his commitment to the cause of resistance, Washington arrives in Philadelphia wearing his splendid old blue and buff Virginia military uniform. He wore the uniform because he knew he looked good in it and because he wanted to be commander-in-chief. And he knew that if other people could see him in that uniform, 
they would see him as he saw himself in command. John Adams nominates 43-year-old Washington as Commander-in-Chief of the Continental Army, which will wage a war for national independence. What is required now is one able man to build and to lead this new uh, Continental Army. And who do you propose of the Massachusetts delegates should lead this force? I have but one gentleman in mind, known to all of us. President, I propose as Commander-in-Chief our most honorable and esteemed delegate, the good gentleman from Virginia, Colonel George Washington. He is elected unanimously. I am truly sensible of the high honor the Congress has done me, but I tell you now, I do not think myself equal to the command I am honored with. Washington sees his appointment as one ordained by God. Your Continental Army awaits you at Cambridge, sir. In his letters, he refers to the war as the cause, with cause always capitalized recognizing God's providence in their resistance. John Adams prophetically writes that Washington could become one of the most important characters in the world. Washington accepts the assignment, knowing that if he fails, he would lose everything he struggled so hard to gain. He would lose Mount Vernon. Then Congress approves the Declaration of Independence, resolution asserting America's right to choose their own government absolving all allegiance to the British crown. When, in the course of human events, it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political bands which have connected them with another. It may have been Ben Franklin who said, if we don't hang together, we will most certainly hang separately. But it is Washington's neck that will feel the noose first. There is no turning back. When George Washington got to Cambridge to assume his new command of the Continental Army. He, all of his fears were probably reinforced. What he found, instead of an inspired band of revolutionaries, was a disorganized, dirty, undisciplined mob. I'd flogged the lot of them. And he was supposed to command them and make them an army and expel the British from North America and secure independence for the American people. Yes, what is it? Sir, the British are landing on Long Island. The battle is upon us. New York, 1776. Washington is outnumbered two to one. He grew during the war as a military commander, but at the beginning, um, he showed a considerable degree of incompetency. For instance, at the Battle of Long Island, he left the end of his line open, the British were able to run around it, then nearly catch his whole army and destroy it. Washington loses New York, which begins a succession of losses up and down Manhattan Island. A skirmish at Harlem Heights, a defeat at White Plains, a disaster for Washington at Fort Washington, another disaster at Fort Lee. By November, his army has almost evaporated. Men have left or deserted to bring in harvests. Thousands have been captured or killed. Many have fallen ill, and the British are chasing his remnant of 5,000 across the New Jersey plain. By the end of 1776, the Continental Army was melting away. The jig seemed just about up. Washington 
was in despair. He started to talk about having to go hide out in the West. To his brother, Washington writes, I think the game is pretty near up. By December of 1776, the Continental cause was in very serious trouble. Washington's uh, soldiers were about to go home. Their enlistments were expiring. Many colonists were beginning to take up the British offer of pardon. They were going over to the enemy. The revolution was unraveling. And then, suddenly, at the very end of the year, in, in a bold and daring move, uh, Washington, with his small remaining army, swooped down on Trenton, New Jersey. There are few places in America where history pivots around the character of a single man. Washington's crossing the Delaware River in Trenton, New Jersey, is one of them. When Washington wins here, the tide turns with him. The watchword Washington has chosen for the Trenton attack is victory or death. 2,400 American troops cross the Delaware in the middle of a sleet storm on Christmas night, Captain, 1776. This weather will wet the men's powder. Our muskets won't fire. Then you must use your bayonets, Sergeant. Trenton must be taken. Many things go wrong, but the genius of Washington's attack lies in the date of its execution. In their barracks, the enemy has been celebrating Christmas with rum and ale. As night comes on, so does drunkenness, then sleep. At Trenton, Washington had to try something new. Conventional military tactics had failed him. He remembered the guerrilla tactics of the Indians from the French and Indian War. So he and his men snuck up on the sleeping Hessian soldiers. Washington slipping across the Delaware, taking advantage of Hessians who had had too much to drink, surprising them in the morning and winning a very small victory. It was not a great thing in military terms, but it was very important to the survival of the revolution. Take all the sea bread you can carry. The legends of barefoot soldiers leaving bloody footprints in the snow are not fiction. The tales of starvation, disease, malnutrition, and exposure at Valley Forge in the winter of 1778 are not exaggerations. One soldier recorded seeing a dead body so covered with lice that it was thought the lice alone had killed the man. Even after makeshift cabins are built and the men are out of the freezing wind and snow, each sentry still has to borrow clothes from his bunkmate before his turn at guard. As the guard rotates, so does the clothing. But there is one thing not lacking in the American camps, rum. It is calculated that rebel troops are consuming a bottle a day per man. When enlistments expire, Washington goes before his troops and offers a bounty to all who step forward and re-enlist. The drums rolled. No one stepped forward. Washington couldn't believe it. He was dismayed. He was... He was shocked. He was desperate. So he marched up and down the line, begging, pleading, conjoling his men to stay, telling them that the future of America rested with them. The drums rolled again. This time, one man stepped out, two men stepped out. And at the end, everyone who could stayed on. 
He could lead. He could inspire his men. They admired him. He looked the picture of a general. He was a responsible, careful tactician. I don't suppose any military genius, but he had the genius to lead. And when we come back, the final segment in this remarkable story, the story of George Washington, our first president on President's Day, here on Our American Stories. our American stories and now the final segment of our hour-long celebration of the life of George Washington on President's Day. Deeply feeling the plight of his men, Washington constantly hounds the Continental Congress for supplies, trying to shame them by appealing to their sense of patriotism. Congress's typical response is to give Washington permission to commandeer what he needs from those living near his stationed troops. Washington refuses this invitation to rob his fellow citizens at the point of a bayonet, arguing that to do so will alienate the very people in whose name the struggle has been undertaken. A struggle also exists with his generals. Washington has as much trouble with some of them as he does with the British. Men like Charles Lee and Horatio Gates, men who'd been officers in the British Army, thought Washington was a bumpkin, someone who didn't know anything about an army or how to run a war. And they caused George a tremendous amount of trouble. They conspired, they talked behind his back, they spoke to members of Congress, they tried to discredit him, but in the end, he met them with patience and persistence, and their own incompetence ruined him. And George survived, and they didn't. Throughout his career, he appears touched by God. On horseback, he leads charges into the thick of battle, willfully exposing himself to cannon and musket fire, strolling through a hail of shot. Yet not once does a bullet or shrapnel ever even graze him. In April 1781, a British warship sails up the Potomac and trains her guns on Washington's cherished home, Mount Vernon. Most of Washington's Virginia now lay under British control. The governor of Virginia, Thomas Jefferson, begs Washington to come home and save his state. Washington declines. When Jefferson called upon Washington to defend his home and his state, he was talking to a Washington who no longer existed. Washington's allegiance was no longer to the country he had grown up in, English Virginia but was an allegiance to the future. Washington's record on the battlefield is three wins, nine losses, and one tie, which is no source of pride. If we succeed, we have a chance to end the war here. But the best battle to win is the last one. Surprise and terror will be your main weapons. And Washington endures long enough to win it, the three-week siege at Yorktown. May Providence be with you. This is where the Revolutionary War ends on October 19th, 
1781. When British General Cornwallis asks for the terms, Washington replies that the same honor should be granted to Cornwallis's surrendering army as was granted to the American garrison of Charleston. The point is not lost on Cornwallis. When Charleston fell to the British in 1780, the British refused to grant the Americans the honors of war, treating them as rebels and not as a legitimate army. Washington now demands the same humiliation of Cornwallis. But Cornwallis claims illness and sends a stand-in to Sir, the surrender ceremony. Earl Cornwallis is indisposed. I am second in command. In an attempt at insult, the British stand-in tries to hand over Cornwallis's sword to a French officer who had fought with the Americans. But the Frenchman refuses, directing him instead to Washington. Washington also refuses. He orders the Englishman to surrender Cornwallis's sword to General Lincoln. General Lincoln will accept the surrender. Who was the humiliated American commander at Charleston. Sir, my sword. During his campaign against the British, Washington is always outnumbered, typically outgunned, and always short on supplies, weapons, wagons, horses, and boats. Yet he repeatedly slips the British noose, choosing strategic retreat over honorable defeat. He doggedly wears his enemy down. The British lose the war, not so much because the Americans under Washington defeat them on the battlefield, but because General George Washington does not give up or go away. But Washington's most important performance has yet to occur. Let me set the scene. It's the end of the war. Uh, Washington's generals and his high staff officers are disgruntled. They haven't been paid, they don't trust the Congress. They're not so sure that it's such a good idea to give over control of this new nation to this bunch of squabbling uh, politicians. Many among them wanted Washington to assume greater power, in fact, maybe dictatorial power. His officers plan a meeting at their headquarters on the night of March 15th, 1783. They know how you feel, sir. So they do not want you there at the secret meeting. They will debate a move against Congress to demand their back pay, at gunpoint, if necessary. Washington knows he has to confront them. He begins writing a speech. He agonizes over every sentence and every word. He was ripped apart inside. He had suffered with these men. He'd watched them die. He'd watched them be wounded for their country. He knew what they had given up. He knew how Congress had mistreated them. And a part of him was attracted by their offer to be a kind of king. And he knew for certain that if he gave in to their offer, if he gave in to the allure of power, not only would he betray his country, but he would also betray the reputation and the honor that had been so hard for him to attain. He rides alone to the meeting. As he enters the building, the angry officers are stunned but he sees no smiles, and there is no applause as he stands before them and begs them not to open the floodgates of civil war, which would surely drown the new nation in blood. If you will not lead us, sir, stand aside! I stand aside, and if you try to silence me, you are asking for a nation in which freedom of speech is taken away. He knows he is failing, so he decides to read a copy of a letter from Congress, 
once again promising payment. It might work where his eloquence has not. He holds the letter in front of him and begins to read. I have a letter from a member of Congress. But something is wrong. And they are trying the officers draw closer. Then, Washington takes out a pair of glasses and puts them on. No one in the audience has ever seen him in his glasses before. The officers are shocked. Washington looks out at the men and speaks. Gentlemen, you will permit me to put on my spectacles, for I have... not only grown gray, but almost blind in service of my country. With this, he brings them to tears. He steps down from the stage and moves slowly towards the door. The conspiracy collapses. All that is left are the formalities of history. He knew that his glasses would be a symbol of his own weakness and vulnerability. And he hoped, he hoped that this would persuade his men that by betraying their country in this manner, they were also betraying him personally. It's high political acting, but what he did was he staged that performance in order to rescue control of the new government from a disgruntled military and to return it to civilian power where it belongs. And in that moment, we have fused the extraordinary political performance of George Washington, the ambitious, would-be leader, and the principles about politics and about civilian rule, which restrained him even in the moment of his highest acting. Nine months later, Washington surrenders his commission and his army to Congress. The grand irony of his life, which in the beginning was based on acquisition, is that he did not secure the reputation he sought until he gave something up, power. President Abraham Lincoln once said, to add brightness to the sun or glory to the name of Washington is alike impossible. The path of George Washington's life is one from frontier to capital. It is one of our greatest American stories. And of all those who helped create the new nation, none are more deserving of the title founding father great job on this as always greg in the afternoon of april 30 1789 george washington stood on a small balcony on the second floor on federal hall in new york washington looked down over the crowd that filled what would one day be heart the heart of american finance at broad and wall street in lower manhattan he took the oath of office there having added to his oath the now traditional so help me God. All the pieces for the world's first constitutional republic were now in place. The grand, the great experiment could begin. Everything was new. There were no precedents for the protocols or proper procedures for governing. At his first afternoon reception, which was open to any well-dressed person, Washington's aide opened the parlor doors and announced, Ladies and gentlemen, the President of the United States. Washington was so embarrassed by it all and all the subsequent receptions that he made a point of arriving early and alone and leaning on the fireplace mantle so that arriving visitors would find him already in place. One of Washington's most important roles in the great experiment was to establish the actual working forms of an executive branch. Among other things, the president was constitutionally empowered to appoint a cabinet, ambassadors, public ministers, judges, and other federal offices. 
and the story began. Separation of powers, civilians running a government, and when Washington said no to a third term, he had proved he was the great man everybody had thought he was. The life of George Washington, truly the founder of this country, the country could not have happened without him. This is our American stories, the greatest story of them all, George Washington's. This is Our American Stories, and for the hour, our second hour, celebrating the life of George Washington, we wanted to know more about this man. Who was he? What was he like? And there's only one person to turn to for answers, and that's historian David McCullough. Two Pulitzer Prizes, two National Book Awards, and the Presidential Medal of Freedom. Who was this man who led the nation, who founded the nation, and how did he lead? He wasn't an intellectual. He wasn't a uh, great speaker or a brilliant writer. He wasn't, as a military leader, a, a brilliant tactician or, or a strategist. But he had the capacity to make people want to follow him. And, and if there was a more courageous human being who ever lived, I don't know who it was. And it was the courage of his convictions. And he would not quit. Uh, every every sign was it was over you've lost give up it's not worth it but no he he wouldn't stop and he was the same kind of a unifying force when he became president maybe more so you know it it didn't just come to us out of the sky it just these advantages we have this system of life and government and our freedoms didn't just happen Somebody had to work hard and suffer, and many of them, of course, died to make it happen. And the doubters were all around. It wasn't as if everybody was, oh, this is a wonderful thing, let's, let's go out and fight for it. A fraction of the country was for it. A fraction of the country was willing to serve in the army. I think maybe if there's a message in Washington's life, it's that, it's that willingness to serve and not just talk about what you're going to do, but to act. It takes both. And uh, absolute selfless service to the country in, as they said, war and peace for no pay, nothing in it for him. And then when he gets the ultimate power, as almost nobody could imagine, he gave it up willingly of his own choice. And... uh, this was after the war was over and he'd won. He was the conquering general. He was the hero. He could have been anything he wanted, czar, king, potentate, whatever. He could have made the presidency into a totally different kind of office. But he relinquished power. He said, no, I'm going back to Mount Vernon. And when George III heard that he, might, he George Washington, might do that, he said, if he does that, he will be the greatest man in the world. And uh, because nobody had done that before. This was the, the ultimate uh, uh, ideal of Cincinnatus, you know, that uh, you, the, the 
conquering general, the conquering hero, returns to the plow. Back in the Revolutionary Warrior, our nation was at best an underdog. What were the odds that Washington faced? Well, when the British arrived in uh, the lower bay uh, of uh, New York, New York Harbor, and when they came up into the bay with a force of ships, it was the largest single armada ever seen in the 18th century. Largest armada ever sent forth to suppress a, another people in another part of the world in, in all of history up until then. There had never been anything like it, and, it, and they landed 30 2,000 troops on Staten Island, which was more than the entire population of the largest city in the colonies, which was Philadelphia. And when they came ashore at Long Island, they defeated our army. The largest battle of the, of the Revolutionary War was fought on Long Island, and it was a disaster. And the retreat that followed uh, was uh, brilliant. Uh, they escaped at night from uh, Long Island, from Brooklyn Heights, which was sort of the Dunkirk of the Revolution. A masterful demonstration of leadership on Washington's part because an orderly retreat, even for an experienced army, is the most difficult maneuver to make. And to make it with an inexperienced army at night across the East River, which isn't a river at all but a tidal estuary, uh, was almost beyond imagining. And again, the British woke up the next day, as they had in Boston, to discover the guns on. Dorchester Heights to discover that this army they were chasing had vanished. Now, that's it was brilliant and it was masterful, but you don't win wars by retreating, and that's all they did for the rest of that year was uh, was retreat. And the army kept getting smaller and smaller. By the time uh, they were down in New Jersey, getting close to the Delaware River, uh, the the size of Washington's army was only about five thousand, and probably only three thousand of those men were fit for duty. And here, here comes the British uh, juggernaut uh, with, uh, you know, 25,000, 30,000 men if they needed it. And uh, that was the time that, as uh, Thomas Paine said, that tried men's souls. And uh, Washington managed to get across the river, and then he took stock, and people were saying, look, it's over, and we've lost. But he refused to see it that way, and so what he did what is often what one has to do when all hope's gone. He attacked, and he, that's when he crossed the Delaware Christmas night and struck at Trenton and won, and then a few days later turned around and struck at Princeton and won. Now, those weren't big battles. They were engagements, but the fact that he'd won, the fact that they had defeated this foe was of immense importance to morale all through the country, and that really was not just a turning point in the Revolution or in our history. It was a turning point in world history because it wasn't going to be the same again after that. And that was force of, force of character, force of something inside that man and those people around him, Nathaniel Green and Henry Knox, John Glover and others like that, and the men in the ranks, um, who were few and they had no clo adequate clothing and some of them had no shoes and uh, men died. Men froze to death that night on the march to Trenton, just dropped dead from, from exposure in the army, in the, on the march. And, uh, and he held it together. It's, it's amazing. And it doesn't get tougher than that. This is leadership at its toughest and most dire circumstance. 
These are the conditions George Washington found his troops in and his country in. When we come back, more with David McCullough celebrating the life of George Washington on President's Day. This is Our American Stories. our American stories and we continue our two-hour celebration of George Washington's life here on President's Day. We've been hearing from David McCullough about Washington as a young leader facing daunting odds, but what shaped the man? What was Washington like as a young man? He wasn't always successful. There's an idea that we have, I suppose that it comes from people who are born athletes or born musical uh, uh, virtuosos or whatever, that he had to work hard to become George Washington. It wasn't easy. He suffered defeat. He made mistakes. He made blunders. Um, He was frustrated in his ambitions uh, again and again as a young man. He had a lot to learn. Uh, He had to to, uh, go to the wilderness, which he did. I mean, that's something people don't understand. If you, you talk about someone getting into outward bound, let's say. This was the most outward bound young man in uh, Virginia uh, in his day when it was real wilderness and real uh, adversity uh, living uh, uh, with on the land or in the wilderness. And his, um, his resilience, physical, more, mental, uh, spiritual, this guy could really take it. And uh, and yes, he does sometimes resort to self-pity in his letters. And yes, he can at times not tell the entire truth. And yes, he uh, uh, can let people down. And he's a human being. Thank goodness. Thank goodness. Look, if they were gods, they wouldn't deserve much credit, would they? Because gods can do whatever they want. These are human beings who did what they did. That's what makes it a story, and that's what makes it uh, an encouraging story, an inspirational story, if I may use that word. As Washington grew older, he broadened his interests and refined the character traits apparent in his youth. And here was a man who too few people understand, uh, loved interior decoration, loved uh, architecture, loved landscape design, was an avid uh, uh, agriculturalist, as they called it then, who, uh, who was fastidious about his clothing, his appearance. He had all kinds of human traits that are extremely interesting and revealing. Um, everybody says he was a fox hunter. Well, what kind of a fox hunter was he? He was the kind of fox hunter that was out there at the front as close to the hounds as you could get. Very dangerous place to be. And who would not give up. He would fox hunt for seven, eight hours until they'd got the fox. He just was that kind of a person, tenacious. 
Well, you know, if you're going to be in a fight, that's a good kind of leader to have. And, of course, we have always, as I suppose every nation and people have in all time, we admire that kind of leadership and courage, and particularly if it's in a cause that's just and a cause that's far beyond his own self-aggrandizement or enrichment of any kind. So just how important was this tenacious leader in the American Revolution? Well, he was the leader. He was the commander-in-chief. He was the, uh, the, the winning general, in simplest terms. He won. Took a lot of good luck and help of the French, and it took a long time, the longest war in our history except for Vietnam. And then once we had won, he became the stabilizing factor in the divisiveness that immediately emerged between the regions, particularly north and south. And, uh, and he held the country together for eight years as president. And they, this isn't something that later-day scholars have, uh, have imposed on the, on the material from the past. This is in what they were saying then. He is what's holding us together. He was the, the force of unity. And at that stage, we needed that desperately because there were all kinds of forces outside and inside that were trying to break it up. Europe would have loved to have seen us break up. The faster, the better. What can we learn today from this revolutionary period? One of the lessons of any great creative effort is that it takes all kinds of people to make it happen. And it took all kinds of people to make the miracle of the creation of the United States of America happen. And they weren't the same. They brought different qualities, different abilities, different talent. What Washington brought was the, was the gift of leadership, the gift of courage, leadership, character, conviction, willpower. We will make it happen. And there's no limit to what can be accomplished with goodwill and hard work. And that's a tonic, you know, that's a powerful message, particularly for a people that are struggling just to, to, make a, to, to make a start. Does all this mean George Washington is our greatest president? I don't believe much in ranking presidents. I, 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 are you ranking them as a human being? Are you ranking them as a politician? Are you ranking them in... Uh, in view of what they accomplished. There's so many criteria, so many measurements. But Washington was our greatest president. He was the one at the start. He held it together and he set the example. He, he was the defining model of what the president should be and do. We could not have been more fortunate. I mean, you talk about good luck. Good heavens what he could have been, what he could have done that would have been so detrimental, so um, disruptive. And uh, now Lincoln's great gift was a gift of soul, a depth of soul. And, and once again, he held the country together and fought a war uh, successfully to free people from bondage. And, uh, uh, but uh, Washington is there at the beginning. And the, and the Revolutionary War is the most important war in our history because that's how we came to be. What should we know about Washington today? 
He held the country together, held the cause together, and did so um, in a way that sets an example for behavior as a citizen that we can all learn from, and that his picture really should be, along with Abraham Lincoln, back in every schoolroom, as it used to be. And uh, this isn't ancestor worship, or this isn't uh, uh, old-fashioned um, history. This is the, this is reality. This is the truth. And uh, to be indifferent to people like Washington, to be uninterested in people like Washington is really a form, in part, of ingratitude. We ought to be down on our knees every day thanking God that we are part of this country. And we ought to know about the people who made it possible and thank them, in effect, by showing interest in them. And, uh, and their world, their time, I can't overemphasize that. The 18th century is one of the most interesting periods in all of human history. And it's full of tumult and change, just as ours is. And one, mother, one other thing, I think any time we get down and we think, oh, we're living in such a dangerous, uh, difficult, uncertain time, oh, woe is us, uh, excuse me, it's, we've been through far worse than we're going through now. Uh, with far greater adversity, far more imminent danger, imminent danger. Uh, we, have, um, we have suffered more. We have known uh, darker clouds on the horizon by far than we do now. And we've come through it. And we will again. And let's draw from that example. Draw strength from, strength from history. History is a source of strength and should be. And Washington, of course, individually as a human being, as a, as a figure in history, as one of the protagonists of our story, is a, is a, is a particularly uh, um, striking example of history as a source of strength. And indeed, it's true. We have been through many rough patches when people start to tell you these times right now are the toughest ever. Consider George Washington. Consider the Civil War, which we'll spend hours on on this great show, and our world wars. These are not the toughest times. George Washington faced the toughest times. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. More on the life of George Washington on President's Day. our American stories and for two hours 
and two hours only, and we've done two hours on very few people here on Our American Stories. I'm trying to think of it. John Wooden, two hours. We gave it to the man. We gave it to Martin Luther King, and we gave it to Walt Disney. That's it. And if anybody deserves two hours on this show, it's the founder of our country, George Washington. And here on President's Day, that's what we're doing. And now joining us again, David McCullough. No one has written better about Washington, about the founding of our country. Pick up 1776. Pick it up as an audio book, because there's no better reader of American history than David McCullough. The stories come to life. They come off the page. And we take a lot of our material from that book and from some interviews he'd done in the past. And now, back to our conversation with David McCullough. In 2013, David McCullough gave the keynote address at the opening of the Fred W. Smith National Library for the study of George Washington at Mount Vernon. This extraordinary library is a project of the Mount Vernon Ladies Association. And Gayhart Gaines chaired the fundraising campaign for that library. In 2010, they set the ambitious goal of raising $100 million. In about three years, they raised 106, and not a penny from the government, all private donations. And it was simple. The Mount Vernon Ladies Association had, for all those years, done a magnificent job preserving the grounds. But the question became, what about the ideas? What about the story? And what about creating a place where scholars and researchers could come? And so they did it. And it's a 45,000-square-foot facility chock-full of Washington's books, manuscripts, 1,500 books from the 18th century, and thousands of records from the 19th. And so in this speech, here is McCullough, the best American historian. There's no one like him. He's a national treasure. And in this speech, marking the opening of the library, McCullough framed the study of history in brilliant and simple terms. History is about people. It's not about dates and quotations and provisos and so forth. It's about people. History is human. When, in the course of human events, the operative word there is human. And if you begin to see those who preceded us as human beings who did not know how everything was going to turn out or how anything was going to turn out because for them as for us, there was no such thing as the foreseeable future. Never was, never will be. They did not know they were going to win the Revolutionary War. By all logical, realistic uh, observation, there was almost no chance we could win the Revolutionary War. We had no navy, we had no army to speak of, all amateurs in effect, (coughs) and we had no money. And we were up against the most powerful nation on earth, who were our people. And yet, we brought it off. A miracle. Call it the hand of God, call it fate, call it luck. A miracle, as was the man who led that turning point in history. McCullough reminds us that on paper, Washington wasn't even close to perfect, or even that impressive at first. So what made this man great? Imagine 
only a sixth grade education, relatively little experience in war, and his first-rate moment was a flop, a failure. In Pennsylvania, he started the, started the French and Indian War at Fort Necessity. It was a foolish, almost adolescent thing to have done. He made repeated mistakes during the Revolution, but he always learned from his mistakes. And he had the capacity to get up and keep going. When we choose leaders, we should always take a careful look at how they've handled failure. Because failure is part of life. Failure is part of history. And it's those people who don't lapse into self-pity or blaming others, but who get back up and keep the faith and keep going. And he's the prime example of that. McCullough goes on to say that even though Washington did not have all that much formal education, he certainly studied and knew a great deal. Now, Washington read much more than people seem to understand. And so, in many respects, it's very helpful and revealing to go and look at what he read and what influenced him. One was the great poem by Alexander Pope, Pope's Essay on Man. He read it through and through. So did virtually all of his generation. But he hadn't gone to Harvard. He hadn't gone to uh, William and Mary. Uh, He had learned on his own. And in that magnificent work, there are two lines, which they all knew. And we would do well to remember them today. Act well your part. There all the honor lies. Not power, not glory, not fame, not wealth, honor. A word not too many people use anymore or more discouragingly don't understand. Our lives, our fortunes, our sacred honor, honorable conduct, honorable behavior, offstage and on. He set an example of patriotism, and he set it again and again by understanding what really motivates people. He loved the theater. Act well your part. Fate, history, call it what you will, has cast you in a very lead role. And you have to imagine a a historic proscenium around you. And you go on that stage and you play your part as you best possibly can. They all knew this line. It's one of the reasons they tried as best they could to act well their part. And with the attitude that, what a chance to be a lead performer in this all-important turning point for the world. It was the idea, the goal, the sense of purpose and achievement that really drove those magnificent people of that day. This tiny little country on the edge of giant wilderness, population of 2,500,000 people, 500,000 of whom were in bondage, slavery. Two million people would produce that kind of a generation, a miracle. 
Indeed, it is a miracle, and we bring you this hour and many others on Washington. We'll have at least three or four a year because his life warrants those number of hours. Indeed, in a bit, we'll bring you back to the Battle of Yorktown uh, in the final segment, and we'll learn about how long Washington had been away from home, this beautiful home he'd built at Mount Vernon. And it was a long time, the sacrifices he and so many made for us, and that we don't know these stories in this country. Well, it's a tragedy, and we're trying to redress that here on Our American Stories, telling you every kind of story. Act well your part, there well the honor lies. And by the way, what you read, what you have your children read, shapes them. What ideas you put inside people's heads, what stories you put inside them. And that's the other goal here at Our American Stories, to tell the story of America to America. Because our schools aren't doing it. So we're giving it a shot. More with David McCullough after these messages. This is Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories, and we continue with our conversation with David McCullough. The life of George Washington, his early life, problems he faced and difficulties he faced, the loneliness he faced as he led a nation against just remarkable odds. By accident, by divine intervention, or both, a miracle happened in the America that we knew in the 18th century. And as David McCullough reminds us over and over again, if we listen to him carefully, These men didn't know what was going to happen. They lived in the past, but they were living in the present. And they were living under the toughest of circumstances. A nation split, a nation torn apart. A third with the royalty and the monarchy, a third with the revolution, and a third they were hiding under their tables, hoping for it to all end. And now we continue with our conversation with David McCullough. Back to Mount Vernon and this speech in 2013 for the opening of the Fred W. Smith National Library for the study of George Washington. And again, get to Mount Vernon if you go to D.C. If your school's going, if the family's going, don't leave it out. And go to the Air and Space Museum. It's wonderful. But there is no Air and Space Museum without George Washington. Always know your people's story. You're lost without knowing your own story. So McCullough focused on one moment in Washington's life as a living embodiment of the man's leadership. We often hear of Washington as a soldier or as a politician, but McCullough wants us to see him as something more. And one of the points I want to make, if at all possible, contribute to George Washington today, is that yes, he was a man of action, if ever there was. And yes, 
Actions speak louder than words, but not always, not always. Words can change history. Words can change the outlook of a generation. It's happened again and again. And words can be what motivate the action. One of the most dramatic and telling and crucial scenes in our history, because it took place in the Revolutionary War, during the Revolutionary War, on December 31st, 1776, the day that all the all the uh, recruitment of the Continental Army, all they'd signed up for, expired. Every single one of Washington's troops, as of the next day, January 1st, 1877, was free to go home. And Washington called them out in formation at Trenton on December 31st, and he told them the following. He offered a bounty of $10 for all who would stay another six months after their enlistments expired. A considerable sum, by the way, at that time. And he had done it without any authorization from Congress. And he, as he wrote in a letter afterward to the Congress, I thought at no time to stand on trifles. <laughs> the soldiers were all lined up, and he approached them on his magnificent horse. A commander rides a, comm a magnificent horse. And he addressed them, and he said, in the most affectionate manner, that they would get $10. And um, those willing to stay were told to step forward. The drums rolled. Imagine this scene. The drums rolled. Minutes passed, and not one man stepped forward. Not one. That was a great defeat as any suffered in battle. So what did George Washington do next? He turns on the horse, rides off a little bit, collects himself, turns the horse about and approaches them again. If that didn't work, I'll try something else. He said the following, my brave fellows, you have done all I ask you to do and more than could be reasonably expected. But your country is at stake, your wives, your houses, and all that you hold dear. You have worn yourselves out with fatigues and hardships, but we know not how to spare you. If you will consent to stay one month longer, you will render that service to the cause of liberty and to your country, which you can probably never do under any other circumstance. Again, the drums sounded the men began stepping forward. As Nathaniel Green wrote, God Almighty inclined their hearts to listen to the proposal and they engaged anew. Great moment, breathtaking moment. Really happened, it's not some playwright's concoction. However, there was a playwright in the background, William Shakespeare. 
from Washington also read. You'll remember Henry V. This story shall the good man teach his son. We few, we happy few, we band of brothers, England, gentlemen in England now abed shall think themselves accursed they were not here. You are lucky to be here. You are lucky to be able to help your country. And he says, you will provide, render a service to the cause of liberty and to your country, which you can probably never do under any other circumstance. Same idea. Now, I can't prove, no one can prove that he drew it from that, but surely that's what it is. Surely it is. And again, it was an appeal to honor, not an appeal to the material. The $10 didn't do it. And it never does. Not the big stuff. That's never what rallies a people. Money. Again, act well your part. There well the honor lives. And words matter. And McCulloch proves that. And so I wanted to share just a couple of things from Washington's farewell address to the country. Because it's just pretty remarkable. In looking forward to the moment which is intended to terminate the career of my public life, my feelings do not permit me to suspend the deep acknowledgement of that debt of gratitude which I owe to my beloved country for the many honors it has conferred upon me, still more for the steadfast confidence with which it has supported me and for the opportunities I have thence enjoyed of manifesting my invaluable attachment by services faithful and persevering, though in usefulness unequal to my zeal. If benefits have resulted to our country from these services, let it always be remembered to your praise as an instructive example in our annals that under circumstances in which the passions agitated in every direction were liable to be misled, amidst appearances sometimes dubious, vicissitudes of fortune often discouraging, in situations in which not infrequently want of success has countenanced the spirit of criticism, the constancy of your support was the essential prop of the efforts and a guarantee of the plans by which they were affected. Profoundly penetrated with this idea, I shall carry it with me to my grave. He's thanking the American people for giving him the confidence to do for them what probably only he could do. It's a beautiful story. And this from George Washington's farewell address a bit later on, and again, this is 1796. Of all the dispositions and habits which lead to political prosperity, religion and morality are indispensable supports. In vain would that man claim the tribute of patriotism who should labor to subvert these great pillars of human happiness, these firmest grips and props of the duties of men and citizens. The mere politician, equally with the pious man, ought to respect and to cherish them. A volume could not trace all their connections with private and public felicity. Let it simply be asked, where is the security for prosperity, for reputation, for life, if the sense of religious obligation desert the oaths which are the instruments of investigation in courts of justice? And let us with caution indulge the supposition that morality can be maintained without religion. Whatever may be conceded to the influence of refined education on minds of peculiar structure, 
Reason and experience both forbid us to expect that national morality can prevail in exclusion of religious principle. And then we get to the close of this remarkable address. Though in reviewing the incidents of my administration, I am unconscious of intentional error, I am nevertheless too sensible of my defects not to think it probable that I may have committed many errors. Whatever they may be, I fervently beseech the Almighty to avert or mitigate the evils to which they may tend. I shall also carry with me the hope that my country will never cease to view them with indulgence, and that after 45 years of my life dedicated to its service with an upright zeal, the faults of incompetent abilities will be consigned to oblivion, as myself must soon to be the mansions of rest. Relying on its kindness in this as in other things, and actuated by that fervent love towards it, which is so natural to a man who views in it the native soil of himself and his progenitors for several generations, I anticipate with pleasing expectation that retreat in which I promised myself to realize, without alloy, the sweet enjoyment of partaking, in the midst of my fellow citizens, the benign influence of good laws under a free government, the ever-favorite object of my heart, and the happy reward, as I trust, of our mutual cares, labors, and dangers. The words of George Washington, his final, his farewell address. This is our American stories, the celebration of our first and founding father, George Washington, here on President's Day. <laughs>